Special thanks to everyone who pledged money to crowdfund the show this week, including Matt Lacey, David Walker, Tim Edwards, Ilico Elia, Andy Hagen, Jamie Holland, Roland Roberts, Ian Wilkinson, Alistair Harding, Dan Lane, Ian Mercer and John Balshaw. There's a full list of our supporters on 361podcast.com, along with information on how to help us for as little as $1 per episode via Patreon. Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile technology and the world around it. My name's Ben Smith. I'm Rafe Blanford. And I'm Ewan McLeod. Recorded on the 1st of November 2018, this is Season 16, Episode 2, and this week we're talking about autonomous vehicles. Ewan reports back from his briefings in the valley. And Rafe predicts the end of traffic lights. Welcome back, chaps. How are you? Very good, thank you, Ben. And how are you? I'm good, thank you for oh, asking. Awesome. You and McLeod in sunny Copenhagen? Uh, it's not sunny, man. It's been chilly. No, we're looking at you down the video conference link here, and actually all I can see is your basement ceiling, so I have no it's idea dark. if it's sunny. Yes, it is exactly. dark outside. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Well illuminated in your basement. Uh, but you're both well? I am, yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. Delighted to be back? Yes. Yeah. On a semi-regular recording it's schedule. very excited to be doing regular 361. Thank you to everyone who sent the feedback in saying they're actually glad to yes. have us back. Um, I didn't realise your lives weren't complete without 361 podcasts, so it's very there touching. Yes. Also a bit worrying. And like, have you been in, I've been enjoying uh, interacting on Twist with people. Yes, you should definitely join Twist. And I've yes. been enjoying seeing the photos of the first 361 stickers in the wild. Yes, that wasn't that cool. That was Very cool. impressive. So I've been yes. mailing stickers. I've mailed stickers to Canada. Um, wow. I've mailed some to the States. Where else did I send them? There's one in Europe and loads in the UK. One in Europe? What about me? Oh, I sent yours before. This I'm talking oh, okay, about right. this, since listeners have written it. So listeners right. have been joining Twist. Go on to 361podcast.com and join us on Twist. It's like a chat forum thing. And yes. they're request uh, And we'll send you some amazing, these clear vinyl stickers you can put on things and uh, you express your enthusiasm. Can't find mine. I've put podcast. them somewhere. I have to say, one of the guys was talking about your penmanship. Oh, yes. I've done a little handwritten postcard in with everybody's stickers to say yes. thank you. Although not for me, I noticed. Yes, and also there's a no, bit of a danger that Ben is going to do a pen-centric episode at this rate. Well, I, I forget the circumstance. I think it might have been um, Have I Got News For You, which is a UK topical news you know, satire show, where the subject of pen bloggers came up. I don't know why. And there was much mocking of people who go on the internet to write about how much they like writing on paper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware how this is. Anyways, Rafe Blanford, are you right? Are you looking a little more human than we saw you last time? The work-life balance has returned, has it? Uh, yes, I'll, I can say yes to that. Are you balanced? It's not completely true. <laughs> I'm feeling well and I'm feeling happy. So this is all good news. Good. Let's do things of the week then. Yes. This moment, right. We've got exciting stuff to talk about. So you, McLeod, thing of the week. Mine is Tile. Tile. Have you used Tile, the little like USB, bit, uh, sorry, um, Bluetooth? It's 2012, isn't it? Last time, I seem to remember, he just discovered AirPods, and now yeah. he's discovered no, 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 Bluetooth no, no. low-energy trackers. I've had AirPods for ages, right? This is a little Tile, square, small square, Bluetooth thing you put in your keyring, and it helps. I've got one yeah. in my wallet, one on my yeah. car keys, one on my house keys. We've got seven, I think, in our house. Can I just point out that that's like definitely last decade's technology. What you actually want is one yeah. of the LTE M trackers and there's actually one that samsung have produced in the smart things range and because yes. it's got lta m in it it doesn't actually need to be paired to a phone and it can find its location anywhere 
and it's using low energy LG, so the battery lasts just as well. So it's basically like a tile, yes. but you don't have to worry about the connectivity because it's just always on. So if you really want to get something good, you should go for that rather than a tile, which, like I say, is like, it's a bit noughties. Well, I haven't actually got any. You, ah. haven't, you haven't. Just because so I, I was. It's I was a thing of the week to, that I, you don't have. Well, you, I don't even have to have it, do you, right? Okay, it's something I'm thinking about buying. Right. So it's really interesting to get your perspective. Now's a great time to buy them because oh. the Tile have just released the first ever models with replaceable batteries. Yes. They were always yes. sealed units before. And yeah. we've got the Tile Sport, I think it is. It's the longer range yeah. ones. Mm. But they're still sealed units. So after a year or so, you have to send them in and buy new ones. Get a new one, yeah. yeah. And it's great that you can now put watch batteries in them and, and not have to send them back, which is ace. So I've, I was sat with my colleague Woody a while ago and he was talking about these things. They were absolutely amazing. I'm sure I've seen that you had them. I use my mini every day because I, I, I always need to check where's my wallet, where's my keys as I'm going out the house to catch the train in the morning. And I just phone up, blup, blup, chirp, chirp, chirps, coming out of my bag, ace, they're in there, go. Wow, that's no cool. More so I think I'll house. get something. Yeah. yeah. And get the really large, thin one for your wallet. I don't have a wallet. I, I live in the Nordics. Don't need a wallet. What, kind of nonsense like oh, that. What is it like, barter or something? Yeah. No, Trading no, you just use your phone. Do. Thanks very much. And by, by the way, Google Pay. Live now in the Nordics. Thank you very much. Uh, Get that one Nordea uh, in every well, Nordic country. If you're going to advertise, I want advertising money. Nordea is no, not that's having not an advertising I'm just money. telling you that it's a fact no. that we launched <laughs> that last week. It's just a fact. I want some money. Ralph Blanford, what's your thing of the week? My thing of the week is I picked up a Google Smart Display, which is like a Google Smart Speaker with a screen equivalent of the Alexa show. Ah. I've been quietly impressed by it. It doesn't have the kind of number of extensions or skills that the show has. But on the plus side, it steals you the data and gives it to Google. Exactly. So yeah. now that Google can see where I am in the in the house and it can <laughs> see what I'm looking at. So, you know, just like I feel like handing even more things over to Google. Yeah. But what they have done is they've kind of treated it a bit more as a tablet. So it's got good smart home automation. It's got good integration into the Google services. So things like Google Photos. So when it's idle, it basically turns into a picture frame showing my favorite photos. That's really it's intelligent cool. That's really cool. Switch off at night. And although it's like a, a minor thing, it just immediately felt more useful when I set it up and had that idle screen. The design is pretty nicely done. I've got it sitting in the kitchen. So I'm going to give it cost? a try for a What's bit. It as a, it's £129. So actually, I think it's pretty competitive. I mean, compared to the show, which I bought first time around, 199 Yeah, so it's a lot less than the show, isn't it? So it's about £100 sterling less than the show yeah. at the moment, I think, isn't it? But then the show is bigger. It is it? bigger and the speakers are, are better on it. But the interesting thing for me is actually... And it doesn't steal well, your data it, it, and take pictures of you in your pants. It does act as another kind of <laughs> device that you can cast to. So if you've got an Android device, you can throw things onto the screen. Again, an interesting way of sharing pictures. So just you start to see those things being tied together a little bit more, the smart speakers, your TV, your phone and all of that. And, you know, for example, when you ask it for directions, it will give you the directions but then say oh and i've sent these to your phone so you open up your yeah, phone nice. you can see it immediately open up google maps so just the level of integration was something i thought they'd probably nailed better than amazon lovely what about you my thing yeah. of the week i think i'm a bit giddy about apple having launched the dual sim capability in my iphone xs max gear gti uh, yes. so with ios 12.1 which went live yesterday you can now use the dual SIM capability. Uh, it's live here in the UK. I don't know if it's live in Denmark. No, I need to look and see. In the UK, the eSIM, because you have one physical SIM and one a virtual SIM, that's supported by the operator EE, but also sort of those that remember a long time ago, TruePhone, which was a sort of a, a specialist business roaming product. They've got a data-only product as well. And 
their integration is really nice because you download their mobile app and you sign up for the tariff in their app and it applies the tariff to the handset directly. You don't have to go through the normal process, which is sort of scanning a QR code on a bit of paper that the network gives you. So that's really handy. I was already an EE customer, so I'm going to get a SIM from a different network. A real SIM. A real SIM from a different network in my phone and then transfer my existing line that I've had for ages, which is on EE, over to my eSIM. That's going to be really handy. Do you get three because you can do the the global roaming in so many countries now? Yeah, I mean, the EU regulation has slightly taken the edge off that because the fact I can roam around Europe with the same price at home, it's no longer a sort of a special deal that only three offer. I tend not to travel as much to the States as I used to, where, you know, you had the free roaming was good. But actually, for now, I've actually signed up to ID, which is an MVNO network on three. And essentially, I was just amazed. What I wanted was just a couple of hundred minutes because I'm going to use this as a private voice-only line. So I really wanted a couple of hundred minutes. I'm getting it for like about four pounds a month. It's incredible. The low end of the market, you know, all these specialist mm. deals. And ID, I think, is actually operated by three. It's not, a, it, whilst it is using their infrastructure well, that's as interesting. well. Wow. I don't believe it's like a true MVNO where you're dealing with somebody else's billing and payment systems. This actually mm. really is just a sort of a different brand. I think it's more of a youth mm. brand. And as you can tell by looking at me, I'm, you know, I'm down with the kids. Oh, yeah, you're in, you're in there with the kids. Yeah, exactly. but just picking it up, I mean, one of the interesting things is what's the justification for a dual SIM? And in a lot of places, it was driven by cost and still is in some markets. But here it's actually about the convenience for you of having a second number that you can use without having to carry a second device around. Well, exactly. I mean, I mm. could probably get business second lines and things from EE, but I wanted a different network for versatility. But also, when I travel, I can take the physical SIM out of my iPhone and put a local SIM in, and my main SIM is now the virtual one. Because if you're using the virtual SIM as the travel, you're locked into those massive networks that have big deals with Apple, whereas it's always easy to go and find a SIM card for some local operator somewhere. So that's really good. I'm really going to find that useful. Is it IED or ID? ID, I think. ID. IED is an explosive device, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's not yeah. helpful because I I just searched that. So thanks right. very much for that. Okay, well, best I was of searching luck. for IED. That's fan- you know fantastic. Is thanks. that helicopter always hovering above your house? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, so no, that, that's really <laughs> handy. And I was well impressed with TruePhone because I think it, what it shows is that sooner or later, where virtual sims. I mean, you had eSIMs in your iPad for ages, eSIMs yep. in, yes. in your in the watches now, eSIMs in the phones. You're going to be able to switch networks or buy data from somebody just on the basis of loading up an app and, and pressing go, effectively, because you even put on the TruePhone app, you even pay with Apple Pay. So it's all, it's nice. all integrated. Very so nice. that is my thing of the week. So, well, you and McLeod, yes. what are we talking about this week? Well, we are going to talk about self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles or driverless cars. There's a whole lot of different names for them. And that's because I was out in the valley, maybe, a little while ago. San Francisco for everyone else. Mm. On a jolly. Right, yeah, so the Bay Area, to be clear, I was in Mountain View, actually. Oh, yeah. Actually. Actually, darling. And I was uh, listening to some phenomenal presentations from Google. And one of the... Were you invited or are you just sort of you know hanging around? I just popped in. Yeah. Uh, I was invited and uh, that's very kind of them. And one of the individuals that spoke was CFO of Waymo, mm. Gerard Dwyer. And uh, Waymo is the part-owned Google... Uh, driverless, I, I just don't know, is it self-driving cars? Driverless, autonomous? Autonomous. Anyway, autonomous, car, autonomous car division. And just some of the figures that he was throwing out and some of the other speakers from this couple of days, both from Google and, and otherwise, just some of the things that we're pointing out were just 
crazy. And I wanted to get your perspective and see what you think of them. One of the stats that was thrown out, and I've seen quite a few times, is 1.2 million people a year killed by cars or, let's call it, or vehicles in the world. Right. I've seen similar figures, like a million people killed a year with, you know, on, on average from various different news outlets. It's a crazy stat, but if it's anywhere near accurate, that is just ridiculous, isn't it? And I, I won't tie these just to Gerard, because I think a lot of these different quotes and points came from lots of different people that were speaking at this event. But one of the stats was 94% of crashes in the US, vehicle crashes, involve human choice. And so were they pitching self-driving slash autonomous cars primarily for sort of safety then? Well, yes, but they were just introducing Waymo and introducing the concept. And I think that's an interesting stat there. You know, from a safety standpoint, 94% of crashes involve human choice. I like that rather interesting phrase that you choose, you know, to crash. Of course, that's not the case, but you involve human, you're making an incorrect decision. or you, know. you make a choice and that choice results in a crash. Yeah, exactly. They were talking all about Waymo. Waymo's one, do have a look at their website. They've, they're doing quite a lot. They're introducing a lot of, um, I think they've already done it now, autonomous vehicles into Phoenix and I think a few other cities uh, across America. And I think at the moment it's free or they're testing the cost. We saw some video examples of, I think it's all on YouTube. You can have a, a look at you know, how, how people are reacting to a driverless vehicle. And it really caused me to sit and think, you know, how do I feel about that? You know, I'm perfectly fine in a train, you know, the, an automatic train like there in London or here in Denmark. But uh, you know, a vehicle autonomously moving through traffic that i find really interesting as to how i would feel and react to that especially in small london roads have you been in a tesla on autopilot i have yes have you you and have you i haven't no no i haven't it's a slightly unnerving experience yeah it's weird and is that on the motorway yes a friend of mine has one and we were on a two-lane it wasn't a motorway but it was a two-lane road dual carriageway dual carriageway as we call it in the uk and um it was impressive. It did what it needed to. It, you know, went along. It started. It stopped. It st- slowed down. It. I think it even overtook. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> wow. I think it even did an overtaking maneuver, which is great. But you suddenly become very aware of, like, as you were saying, you and like everybody else's failings. Like, we're not right. gonna. I didn't feel like we we're gonna crash because it's doing a bad job. We're gonna crash yes. because somebody else is gonna do something unpredictable, and the computer doesn't have the instincts of the human driver. But yes, it's funny because I kind of feel like a little bit of a moment. I hear all these news stories from the States and it feels like you're hearing things from like another planet. You know, I mean, these are interesting things, but they don't really feel very immediate to me. The UK government has changed. Well, and there are trials going on in the UK too. Yes. I mean, I agree. It's probably one of the biggest changes that we will see to society in the next decade or so. And because we have been so car centric, particularly in the States and Western Europe. Well, exactly, exactly. And there are implications yes. for kind of human behaviour for urban, for companies. Maybe we'll get onto that in a minute. Well, should, yeah, should I get, can, I, can I throw a few more stats here? So yeah, I mean, the, maybe the thing to think about first is there's definitely this big trust thing, and actually it is kind of more apparent while we're in the mixed mode world, mm. which we will be for the immediate future. One thing, people have talked about autonomous vehicles for quite a while now. It feels like it's been, oh, it's five years away, and it has been for the last five or six years, and it, it hasn't arrived. I mean, there were plenty of trials announced and it will be available in the public. And it's fair enough, you know, level three autonomy, the kind of Tesla autopilot, and there are other examples as well, is well and truly here. But actually, it still feels like we're quite a long way from level five autonomy, which is the idea that you can completely give up control. So let's just pause then, because I want to go back, you and hear a little bit more about what they were telling you and why. But Rafe, level three, level five, 
that's some terminology that's going to be useful for the conversation. So just explain quickly, if people aren't familiar with what this means, what are these different levels of autonomy? It's a suggestion of effectively how much control you can give up from doing everything yourself right up to not having to do anything once you step into the car. So one is the lowest? One would be... You know, kind of the, the bog standard car, even something like level two would be cruise control. Okay. Level three is when you get into autopilot. And then there are well-defined meanings. And actually, I can't remember off the top of my head to so go, go right. ahead and use Google. Yes, I know. Disappointing. But actually, the point I wanted to make was this stuff is arriving, but it is on the verge of happening because there's lots of research going on. You know, there's Waymo. You know, Uber's had its own initiative. Lots of competitors and lots of people trying to do it. I do think it's a really difficult problem to solve because actually these uh, machines have to operate in a world that fundamentally has been designed by humans with a different set of contexts and all the controls that they have to handle. And, you know, driving around the city is very different to driving around the countryside. You have to deal with humans who make unexpected decisions and all of that. And of course, as soon as you make a mistake, it becomes headline news as there was a few months ago when the first person was killed by an autonomous vehicle and that was in testing. But actually the kind of crash level is much, much lower, even in the early trials. So I don't think it's a question of will it happen, it's when it will happen. And that's when we can talk about the numbers and the impact that I think Ian was starting to touch on in terms of what's the impact on like the urban scape and city planning, what's the impact on businesses that are connected to this, how does it change human behaviour and the way you live your life? So what were they majoring on? What were Waymo telling you and why? First of all, as you'd expect, there was, you know, cars are bad. If you like, for example, they were saying like 10 trillion miles are travelled every year globally on average by us humans. But ride sharing is less than 1% of that. So Uber, taxi, anything like that, less than 1%. It'll be rather interesting when that gets to 5%. The impact of that can be quite dramatic. They're also pointing out the cars are generally 95% idle. If you think about your vehicles or vehicle, yeah, are you actually doing anything with it at this time? And uh, for most of us, no. And so right now, there's two cars in our driveway doing nothing for most of the day. And then you know, I think we use our cars probably for about 45 minutes a day, I think. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point because one of the contentions is that with uh, autonomous vehicles, there'll be a rise in the fractional or shared ownership. Mm. And that suddenly means there can be a lot fewer cars on the road because basically you can utilize them better. You know, and if you get up to 75, 80% utilization rate, suddenly the number of cars you actually need on the road drops by something like uh, 50%. Huge. There's yes. different calculations depending on the scenario. That, of course, has a knock on impact on the infrastructure and how many cars you need, car parks and things like that. But also it just changes the relationship with the car because it's not something you will necessarily choose to own anymore. Because also, you know, there is a great pleasure associated with driving for some people. If you take that away, is the car such a personal thing? You know, how does that behave? And, you know, you were alluding there to kind of public transport. I mean, it's worth saying it's not just about individual cars. This can be about trucking. It could be about yes. public transport as well. Yes. And actually one of the fears with autonomous vehicles is that everyone will decide they don't want to get on public transport because it becomes more convenient to get a single pod. And that could actually potentially be bad for the environment because public transport is a very efficient way of moving people. Well, well if you, but if you do it right, Rafe, yeah, if you do it right, you can actually have the car or the vehicle take you to the train and the train is ready and waiting you know, and then there's the vehicle. Yeah, exactly. So for me, that's actually the most interesting thing. I think autonomous vehicles make mixed mode transport fundamentally a better proposition because it solves the last mile problem about how do you get to the transport hub and then take what's effectively mass transit or public transport because it makes that whole process more efficient. And of course, there'll be much better ability to predict when something will arrive and when you need to leave. And so effectively, that thing can turn up and tell you when to get in the car, be ready to go. 
and kind of make that whole process a lot less painful. But this is rocket ship kind of stuff at the moment. Like, I, it's definitely cool. I'm definitely excited. But I feel like we're forgetting how far away this is from happening because Waymo and things can sort of show you this very impressive tech demo because they've got more money than they know what to do with. But we're trying to buy a new car at the moment, and I really would quite fancy buying an electric car. Yep. So I went onto a website that listed all of the electric cars available in the UK right. from any of the mainstream manufacturers. It's kind of like a dealership that's set up that only sells electric cars. That's interesting. But they're not uh, vendor-specific. Yep. You know, And I think it's the motor industry is backing them as a, a kind of thing. And, you know, really, really exciting. I reckon they sell eight models. Yeah. Only one SUV, three or four small cars, you know, a Tesla, whatever. Yeah, but like Mercedes bringing a whole load next year, so is BMW. But that's my point is, you know, Mercedes, who are what probably one of the largest motor manufacturers in the world, have one totally electric vehicle in their fleet, which will become available later this year. Jaguar has one totally electric vehicle. BMW have two totally electric vehicles. And so even now, even in all, all of this, now, I mean, electrification's not a proxy for autonomy. You know, you could have autonomous vehicles that were hybrids and things. But even now, years after the people got excited and saw the appeal of vehicles that were beyond uh, fossil fuel powered, they're still not mainstream. You know, I'm going to probably have to buy a petrol hybrid vehicle yeah. because actually the choices of product available on the market are either too expensive or don't do what we need because there are such a small... Yeah, I mean, there are two ways of looking at it. And I agree, you know, you shouldn't conflate electric vehicles with autonomous vehicles. And yes, the life cycle of cars, kind of 10 years, means that change will happen quite slowly. But we are pretty close to seeing some of those vehicles. And I still think it's the five-year timeline before we then see a 10-year switchover period and there'll be mixed mode and hybrid And what I mean by that is there'll be both autonomous cars and other cars on the road. On the other hand, cars don't stay the same anymore. They're kind of like smartphones is that they can get software upgrades. And Tesla is kind of famous for this. In some cases, actually taking functionality away, including some of the autopilot stuff. But I don't think we're that far away from cars coming out that have the capability to get to level five autonomy through a software upgrade. And I think that will start at the top end of the market. And the thing that's actually going to take longer is it will take a while for that technology to get put into the cheapest cars as a matter of course. And that's actually the thing that's going to take a while for us to get to full autonomy. And getting to full autonomy kind of unlocks some of the biggest changes in kind of the way you do city planning or the effects on businesses. But I think the impact will be felt a lot quicker than people realise because it doesn't take very many cars to get to that point where it starts changing it for some people and certain markets and certain audiences are going to be impacted before others you know yeah there is this outstanding question when will that actually arrive and i think it probably is further than all the silicon valley optimists would have us believe but i still think it's a solvable problem ewan wow us with a bit more waymo talk then because i want to hear about what you saw in the valley so what else did they show you it wasn't from waymo this was an individual i forget his name and he was he was saying they don't have any children i said i made an impression did he uh yeah yeah i said i have a daughter he goes how old was she and i said um uh, she's like 1.5, you know, one and a half years old. And he said, great, she won't be allowed to drive. Yeah. It's just really interesting. He says it'll be illegal for her to drive. She'll be too dangerous. You know, we won't allow people to drive. And so that, I think, is quite interesting. He would then say, if you picked someone else out of the audience at an eight-year-old, and I also have an eight-year-old, he said, yeah, they might just get to do some driving, maybe in the countryside, but it's certainly not in the cities. 
because effectively, yeah, it's just too dangerous. Automation will be so commonplace and reliable that it will be seen as sort of needlessly unsafe to manually control this machine that can kill you. Yeah, so allow a human that can just you know, make mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think, is really interesting. But uh, And you're right to highlight the kind of Silicon Valley distortion fields. But you, when, when we talk, uh, it wasn't just women. Was everyone yeah. you know, on stage talking, this is happening, it's amazing. Anyway, let's talk about some of the possibilities, because I think we can all argue or all, all understand that it is coming in at some point. But it's just interesting to think about the disruption. Go on. What have they made that enables this, though? Because I'm kind of intrigued about what the problems that they're solving. You know, what are they inventing that does things that we couldn't do previously? Uh, so, you know, I, well, of course, Waymo have actually made an autonomous self-driving car system, right? But if we're just talking about the industry at large, I, I wonder if, to a large extent, they're building it and hoping will come. But, you know, I, I, I think I would. I think I like the idea of this stuff. I think I like the idea of a, you know, a vehicle coming up and picking the children up and taking them to school so I don't have to do it. You know, I think that could be really <laughs> there's useful. The, there's the, there's the, there's right, the answer. But then I like the idea of a vehicle coming and picking me up and then taking me to work. And then I can just sit and do nothing or watch the news or, I, I don't know, really exciting. But let's, can I talk to you about some of the, the industries that they were just highlighted as immediate examples that are ripe for change? First one was insurance, which I think is rather obvious, right? Because if, if you're using an autonomous car, you don't need insurance for yourself driving. If anything, I would imagine the insurance will be built into the cost of the ride or whatever. Yeah. So the entire the global insurance industry is going to have to think carefully about what they do for driving. I think there'll still be a massive market, but maybe well, there'll still be a market. I wonder if there's going to, you know, the standard ways that you and I and all of us experience car insurance will change dramatically. You just don't need that anymore. Parking was quite an interesting one. They highlighted that 30% of US real estate in cities is uh, given over to parking or parking lots. And having just been in New York the other day, I, I was just amazed at how many parking lots there are. If you actually sit and stare, the small, big, uh, everywhere, that will not be required soon. It was interesting. You say you won't need parking lots because the car will come, it will drop you off, and then it will go away and it can go and park somewhere you know, far away. But it, interestingly, back to Rafe's point, the thing that always baffled me about New York was how you can be in the city centre but have like massive, massive roads because everybody yes. you know, there's still so much traffic, even in a place where you've got a transit system and all that kind of stuff. So is that actually going to get worse? So a city's going to become more car dominated, but there won't be parking garages, but there'll be massive roads. It's a really interesting thing that urban planners are talking about a lot at the moment. Because you will have high utilisation, there will just be fewer cars and therefore fewer need for parking spaces. But the parking spaces don't go away altogether because obviously there are peaks and troughs in demand. But what you'll probably see is kind of nests that live in the city that autonomous vehicles go and live in for a few hours in the middle of the day. But the parking will be different because, of course, they can pack them in as tight as they like. The actual number of roads that you need will be significantly smaller. You'll probably still have the main arteries and then, you know, smaller roads. So there'll probably be a greater amount of pedestrianisation there'll definitely be an increase in kind of green spaces because I think that's what a lot of car parks will be turned into. And so the kind of way the urbanscape is made up will actually fairly fundamentally shift because it will free up a lot of space, actually could have an impact on things like land prices as well and the new developments that can happen. But it also changes even the shapes of buildings and things like that because, for example, there won't be an expectation that most people arrive and go into the parking garage of an office building so suddenly yes. there'll be a reinvention of the lobby and arriving in the lobby will be the standard thing to do because you'll pull up at the curb, you'll walk into the building. How does that change kind of the way you go into a building? What kind of shops and amenities are around that? All of that kind of thing becomes 
quite interesting to think about. And actually, does this mean a revitalization of city centers and away from kind of out of town stores? All of those kind of things are kind of open questions at the moment. And it will be the most fundamental re-architecting of the urban planners and the urbanscape that's happened basically since the horse and carriage, because, you know, cars came in to dominate things. We had this idea that the car was the dominant thing that you design the city around. Yes. It's still going to be vehicles, but they're going to be vehicles that behave in very different ways. And it's as fundamental as the shift was from people walking or riding a horse as the dominant form of transport as the shift to the motor car. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. I mean, the thing is to say here, though, it isn't going to happen overnight. There isn't going to be a day where suddenly the first autonomous vehicle goes on sale. It is going to be a big transition period. This mixed mode that I referred to earlier, it'll be much more typical for, say, a small town or a village to be autonomous only during daylight hours, because Mm. in the dark, it's maybe a harder problem to solve. Or you'll find that some roads encourage autonomous behavior, and that will actually probably be the highways first, because it's an easier problem to solve. It will be things like trucks actually will go autonomous for 90% of their journey and then have a driver who takes in the last 10%. Actually, we probably don't fully understand or yet comprehend where that switchover is going to happen, how big it is. But that end result, as I say, is going to be a big shift. And as, as Ewan said, you know, people will not have to drive. That then changes you know, how long they're prepared to commute or the type of commuting they're willing to do. Because actually the big shift is, what does the car become when you get in it? There is an expectation no, that you drive. One. Do you read? Do you have a meeting? Do you sleep? Does that change the transport choice you take? For example short-haul flights of maybe two or three hours, would you not choose to sleep in the car overnight while it drove you to your destination? Yeah. Could that be a shift? You know, all of those things, I think it's quite hard to, you know, grasp, particularly in the round. But like I say, I think it's going to be probably the biggest change to the kind of physical world that we live in, I would say, since, you know, electrification and kind of that urbanization movement that happened post-industrial revolution. So Ewan, what was your takeaway from seeing the Waymo presentation like firsthand? I was just astonished, I think, by just as Rafe is saying, the implications for the way that we all live are quite dramatic in that, theoretically speaking, I could call up a Hilton, and by that I mean a hotel room on wheels, I have it parked outside and I just get into it, and then 10 hours later, I've had a really nice sleep, a great shower, done some work, and I arrive in London. You know, that gets rather exciting about what that means. And then from a commuting standpoint, you know, all the land values, the price of property, all based around you know, being near a station or being able to walk to a station and so on, those begin to potentially dissipate quite dramatically when you can just have a vehicle pick you up in the centre of London and it may be three hours to get home. But that doesn't matter if you're going to the gym in your vehicle, you know, if you are conducting a meeting in your vehicle. I mean, it's really interesting possibilities that I think you know, if you're working in any of, the, kind of these industries that we've been talking about, or you know, car repairs, hotels, entertainment, delivery services, there's a whole load of different things that you can say. Oh, they're going to be impacted dramatically, but the opportunities for new ways of servicing customers are going to be dramatic. I think it's really quite exciting. I'm intrigued how, because we, we're quickly into stuff I, I don't know, I don't understand, you know, sort of the societal impact. But I wonder how people who can't afford a self-driving car are affected by it. You know, as the world adapts around them, you know, everyone who can afford a Mercedes S-Class with level four autonomy or something like that, as you say, you know, sort of the, the classic thing of the S-Class is the mm. premium vehicle that all exciting new technology trickles down from, according to folklore, that actually people are differently excluded from cities. Previously, perhaps they couldn't afford to live there because there was such a price premium of being in a place where you were close to the city. 
You know, you can't live in central London. You can't afford to live in the certain parts of the commuter belt because it's too expensive in the way that Ewan was talking about property prices being driven by transport links. But then now you can't afford to own the vehicle that will make this all accessible well, so, to yeah, you. Yeah, wait, 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 because you're saying own. Yeah, I think that's the interesting point, that yeah. there is at least initially a danger of greater stratification and a bigger gap between rich good and poor. Good word, good word. Because in, in the early day, I think you do own it because that's how people tend to access vehicles at the moment. And that change of leasing or, or shared ownership, all that kind of stuff does come in time, but it arrives with the increasing availability of the technology. Agreed. And so the rise of fractional ownership will take a while. And the thing is, but when that happens, actually, it might give greater accessibility and actually be something that improves the quality because basically you're only paying for the usage that you actually need. And I would expect uh, autonomous vehicles to be like everything else, to become commodified very quickly. And actually, you know, we're talking about impacts on industry. You know, the idea that you don't own a car, just because a lot of people do take pleasure from owning a luxury car, does that sort of go away? No. You know, is there a raised in this kind of multimodal transport? You know, and all the industries connected to this, I mean, Ewan's already alluded to insurance, actually even something like hotels, because a lot of hotel business comes from people doing kind of a one-day trip and having a break somewhere along the way, which isn't necessary if you can sleep in the car. Yeah. Even fast food restaurants, you know, 60% of McDonald's revenue in the States comes from drive through He's good. And, you know, the delivery issue as well, you know, does this actually help bricks and mortar? Because literally they can have someone load something into your car for you it drives off and deliver it for you. All of those kind of logistical questions comes in. So I would prefer to take the optimistic and slightly utopian view that actually I think this will be a leveller because it allows more efficiency in the use of transport and delivery and all that related infrastructure, which will therefore make it more accessible to a greater number of people. Because actually the entry barriers to owning a car right now are pretty high and the kind of cost of ownership is pretty high what fractional ownership does is effectively means you're paying for usage. I think up to a certain level, that will be a good thing. But you're right, you know, it does set up a whole new set of conundrums about does that put gates in other places? And actually, does it change, you know, what is considered a great area to live? Because there will still be those variations. It's not going to get rid of them. What it will do is probably suddenly the place that was kind of considered, you know, low value will be the best place to live because and I suspect that will be a lot around the walking amenities that are immediately accessible, because I think what autonomous vehicles probably do more than anything else is in the destroy space in the same way, and I mean that in the sense of physical space, because the distance between two things matters less. What Ewan was getting at was you can afford to do a longer commute because your time driving is no longer wasted. I mean, the average in the UK, I believe, is something like a 60-minute commute. It's 90 minutes in the US. That time at the moment is effectively wasted. The only thing you can do is you know, listen to talk radio, maybe be on the phone to music. Yeah. You have to concentrate. You are giving away basically you know, anything up to 10% of your waking time of your day. What does that do when you get it back? You know, do you use that for recreation? Do you use that to work harder? That's a very significant productivity boost to the economy potentially as well. So yes. it could drive growth in certain countries. And, you know, we hear a lot about that at the moment in the UK and the US about falling levels of productivity. This could absolutely be the thing that solves that. And that will be good from the point of view of society can reduce poverty because productivity, we know, is intrinsically linked to having greater overall kind of GDP and value in society, the impact on you know, taxation and all that. So it all has to be considered. Having said that, you're not paying car tax anymore. You're probably not paying uh, fuel duty at such a high level. 
So all of these things have massive knock-on effects. And it's just a question of how quickly it happens. And I mean, I do agree with Ben. I think it's sort of, you can get very excited about this stuff and then get, ah, actually, it's going to take 20 years. I think about all those changes and I think I don't understand how to understand them. You know, when we talk about the technology, I get giddy about radar and GPS and cameras <laughs> and automation because whilst I can't understand how those systems work, the novelty and the excitement of the bit of technology, you know, the vehicle, the brain, the smartphone on wheels, that interests and excites me. And the knock-on societal impacts, I mean, much like when we talk about the impact that mobile technologies had on people, we're quite a long way past talking about specs and phones and new gizmos and that kind of stuff because it's interesting, but it's not the most important thing now, actually, the way it affects our lives. And you're talking proper economics there, Rafe, and I think you need to actually have a different set of skills to have this conversation now. Um, and actually, Ewan, just backing up mm. a little bit, is Waymo a car company or a technology company? That's a good question, and I should not speak on behalf of them because I think they probably have a particular, a very special answer for that. But I, I, I wonder what it depends on what you're thinking, you know, because I don't they don't manufacture the vehicle, but I think it's, you know they've got the software. I think there's some, there's a hardware question to it, of course. And then, but they are the service provider fundamentally. You know, do you have a way more subscription? You know, yeah. you have an Uber subscription, ten dollar, twenty dollars a month, all the travel you want within the city. You know, I don't know. I think it gets interesting because. Quite a lot of analysts have this thing about can technology companies learn to make cars quicker than car companies can learn to do technology? And, you know, that with that particular question has been asked in a lot of different ways of a lot of different industries as software has started to do other jobs. But I'm curious about, going back to what Rafe was saying, which one matters most? Because car companies know how to make cars, but actually what they really do is understand people's mobility needs and that a car actually is oftentimes is a luxury box on wheels with entertainment oh. and lifestyle value and blah, blah, blah. And actually the business of how it drives and physically goes is only sort of 10th or 12th on the list of important things it does. Mm-hmm. But actually technology companies have habitually been tone deaf about that kind of thing. And the reason that Waymo interests me, and I'm not having a pop at them particularly because they, they were good enough to talk to you, Ewan, is that for me, every time Google steps outside of technology and starts to do sort of stuff that affects humans, the corporate culture becomes apparent. And that tone-deaf valley sort of optimism slash sort of, you know, sort of a slightly... Arrogance almost. Well, I was was trying to avoid the use of the word arrogance, but that thing where they have this sort of one view of the world and if Mm. everybody just shared everything, it would be great. And Google always fails in favour of Google making money. Google always fails in favour of capturing more data. You know, that's not a pop of them. That's where their culture shows up. And, you know, how will that manifest uh-huh. itself in things like vehicles? You know, uh-huh. could you see an Apple car being a very different thing to a Google car? Because when you take all of those kind of corporate cultures and apply them to something as different as a car than a smartphone, you know, where so many of the challenges are sort of resolved now, we've settled on what is generally best. I think it could get really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it comes for me down to a question whether vehicles become kind of homogeneous is everyone going to accept it becomes like a utility and i think for a substantial part of the market that is the case and then what's interesting actually it's going to commodify pretty quickly yeah because the technology and there's you know the big tech giants you're right are investing in it and you can easily see the classic sign of disruption with a car manufacturer trying to you know tesla is in the middle somewhere and then you've got google and you know apple has is said to be investing in this technology but obviously, you know, people like Volvo, GM, all the big car manufacturers, they all have their own programs. 
It's not yet clear to me which one of those is going to win. And a lot of that does come down to the question you were asking, Ben, was what actually matters to the customer? Because you could argue that a lot of the auto manufacturers at the moment are basically good at marketing and marketing kind of a lifestyle choice. Some of them are about the technology, and there are definitely people out there who buy a car for that reason. But a lot of people also want it to get from A to B and see what it says about themselves. It's kind of a fashion choice almost. But I do think the changes do kind of push me towards thinking that this will become a utility and commoditize simply because that's probably where the biggest market is. And, you know, it does remind me quite a bit of uh, smartphones in that respect. And we have seen that come down to kind of a single set of components and actually almost a single set of designs, you know, that glass slab, because that's what is the efficient thing for the mass market. I mean, it does worry me a little bit because that's actually also going to concentrate enormous wealth and responsibility and technology probably into the hands of a few companies. Some of them who probably aren't well-placed to exercise it. And yeah, you get into the ethics and things like this, because of course, the thing we haven't touched on is, do you actually trust a car to drive you? I mean, I think it's BMW have come out and promised that they will kill the person who's in the way, not you. (laughs) And you know that is basically their thing on the ethics of autonomous driving, which is a perfectly reasonable position to take. Well, if you're paying for it, I think you'd want that to happen, probably, well, wouldn't in- you? Indeed. And then there is the question around who do you sue if it goes wrong? Is it the person who programmed the algorithm? Is it the context that you're in? I mean, I don't think we should get into that. Now, it's an interesting topic to think about, but all of that is going to be things that have to be talked about. And will there be a, basically a choice that you're seen as a selfish person if you buy a certain brand because that's the one that's going to save you versus the kind of environmentally friendly one and of course it's also all the can't believe you're driving that bmw well exactly you know the bmw kill edition basically (laughs) but then it's also batteries and electricity because actually all the energy to drive this is it's happening at the same time although we were decoupling autonomy from electric vehicles actually you know again the people who build the batteries and have that technology are going to be enormously influential and it probably ties in with the rise in renewable energy and basically that is very much associated with the cost of these things because worth remembering it's not free to recharge these um, autonomous vehicles although the cost of running them will be significantly lower in all likelihood it probably ties in with can we solve kind of the upcoming energy crisis in terms of you know fossil fuels and all that it ties into that as well so it's connected to a lot of other what i describe as mega trends And so you can think about it on that level, but actually there's a very personal dimension to it as well. Would you actually, as an individual, trust a car to drive you around? We'd probably be quite happy, but I'm sure we could all identify friends and family members who wouldn't want to give up that control. But then I can also identify friends and family members who wouldn't be comfortable to drive me around. Exactly. (laughs) And as Ewan was kind of pointing out earlier, you know, for the younger generation, it will just become a normal thing. Mm. You know, just as they expect to, you know, touch a phone and have it respond to them, you know, the digital first generation, we're going to have an autonomous first generation who just have a different expectation. They won't expect their parents to come and pick them up at school. They'll expect a car to come and pick them up and deliver them home or to take them to activities. All of that kind of thing is really interesting to think about because actually it'll probably give people a lot more freedom as well. So Ewan, Mm. you saw the Waymo demo and a bunch of other sort of presentations around those themes. What was the sort of the parting shot? What was the call to action? Were they trying to sell you on the idea of autonomy? Were they trying to sort of convince you to invest or to buy? Or No, you know, it was simply, uh, they were just pitching. I was really good at them. They just came along and, and, and talked. And I think it was quite sensible the way they did actually introduce it by saying, like, there is a safety angle to this. As good as the disruptive angle to it. And I think it's quite a smart way there just to say, like, this is happening. They just kind of almost left it there. Very sensible because we can just 
get on with waiting and seeing. I've been following them rather closely over the past few months, just watching the news around what they've been doing in the various different cities across America. Because I think it looks like they're live with a small number of vehicles already, and I think they'll continue to do so. So that's one to watch. It's interesting because when I worked for, I mean, long time ago, I worked for a car company, and around that time, Ford was unifying its models around the world. And so I was there around the time where the small vehicle platforms were being unified between North America and Europe, and this was seen as a revolutionary cost-saving. And there used to be this crazy thing that there was a small vehicle called an Escort in the US and a small vehicle called an Escort in Europe, and they were completely different vehicles and completely different platforms. And then the Focus platform launched, and they're the same vehicle, and now all the manufacturers do this. But all of a sudden, those economies meant that the car industry was able to sort of progress. But now you're saying, oh, Phoenix is going to have, you know, this program's going to yes. launch and this market's going to have this. And I was thinking when you were talking earlier, Rafe, I was thinking about Norway, which has a very high electric vehicle ownership. And yes. I wonder if lots of access to renewable energy, lots of electric vehicle ownership feels like a market where these things might take off more rapidly mm. because the electronics in the vehicle that does the electric vehicle stuff is well placed to do some of the automation stuff you know maybe that's a place where it will land but perhaps you'll start to see for some kind of transitional period different automation systems arrive in different countries before we get to that slab of glass model before we work yeah. out what's best and yes. actually you know you'll start to see diversions and more localized car companies and perhaps that's where some of that cost And some of what you save in power and what you save in land and all that kind of stuff, you start to pay back in the actual cost of operating these vehicles is higher than the relatively low cost of the, you know, homogenous tin box and combustion engine that you buy now that was, you know, made in Japan and ships to, you know, 50 countries around the world. Yeah, because it absolutely does allow kind of that variety to bloom and, you know, you could go a micro manufacturing scale in that you know it would almost be like print your car but you use the standard autonomous components all the bits then have what you like and it does allow that sort of thing to happen i think the other thing to pair to that is the kind of the trickle down effect of autonomy which we've been alluding to with you know the impact on airlines on hotels and everything else you know once you get to full autonomy there are some kind of more project effects as well just imagine what a city looks like when you don't have any cars with headlights because it could just be done on radar and infrared Suddenly you don't need traffic lights anymore. You probably don't need signage anymore. How that just changes the streetscape. Even little stuff like that. Yeah. Like, wow, actually yeah. that changes how you Much more experience pleasant the air as well. And do you sort of, you know, what do you do about streetlight pollution? All of that kind of thing is around the corner, which is why I think it's such a disruptive thing, not just on, you know, the humans and our behavior and how we choose to own vehicles and how we choose to travel and where we choose to live and where we choose to go and do activities, but just the world around us. And it's hard to think of another thing that, you know, has that kind of impact. You know, it would have to probably be electrification of cities where, you know, you had streetlights and everything else coming in. That's how big a shift we're talking about, even if it is a while. And what will be most interesting is to see what happens first. You know, where do the effects and the impacts get felt first? Go on then. We're up on time. Takeaway, when are you going to get your first autonomous vehicle and how autonomous will it be? Don't know. I wonder, should I say eight years from now? Eight I don't know, that's 2026. 20, I've known you more than eight years, so there's a slim chance that in eight years' time we can come back and go, wrong! <laughs> 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 I just made that up, but I, you know what? I think I'm keen to play with it. Yeah, I'm excited at what it can mean for society. I think it could hopefully be quite positive. Who knows? 
I'm a bit more cynical. Like, I, I want it. Like, this is ace. Like, all of these things we talked about, I sort of, you know, press the fast forward button. I want to see what happens because I think it gets interesting where all the hygiene factors are taken, taken care of. But we talked about all these levels of autonomy. And I think that people are overestimating how quickly you can get to level five. I think the work to go from one to two, two to three, three to four is like this sort of curve, yeah, yeah, this hockey stick curve that goes way, way up. And that where we glibly say, oh, look, you know, Tesla have got level four just about sort of good enough now, and then they'll do level five next. No, Tesla have to do 50 times the work for what they've already achieved in order to have a candidate for level five. And I think that for a very long time, automation is going to be assistive rather than totally replacing the human driver. And actually what it's going to do is potentially sort of just nibble away at the unpleasantness of driving that you alluded to, Rafe, rather than actually be this kind of utopia of, you know, kind of a, like a sci-fi film, yeah. you know, shiny boxes that kind of call when you press a button on your phone. Rafe, what about you? Do you have a car now? I don't have a car. Because you live in the sprawling metropolis. Exactly. So I would be very keen to be able to order up an autonomous vehicle anytime I like. You can order an Uber. Well, it's got a genuine exactly. Mark 1 human brain in it. We didn't actually talk about Uber, but Basically, Uber is prototyping autonomous vehicles, just having people do the work. And there will be massive change, obviously, to Uber's business model once autonomy comes along. And I do think taxis, particularly in constrained urban areas, will be one of the first places we see that and most people will be able to experience it. And that's actually where the trials are already happening. The other one for me to watch out for first is the... Um, Bamford Estate? Well, of course, but the trucking industry, because actually... 80, 90% of a truck's journey is on a motorway. And that's actually quite an easy autonomy problem to solve. You know, and actually there's a lot of value in solving that because you suddenly move away from drivers only being able to do a certain number of hours because all they'll need to do is kind of the manual control at the beginning and end of the journey. The cost efficiencies there are pretty significant. So, I mean, I agree with you. We're not going to get to utopia overnight. There will not be a day where all this switches on or even a five-year period. But I think we will see the impacts of it, you know, relatively quickly. I'm not enough of an expert to put a timeline on it, but I think next two or three years, we will start to see more trials going public. And, you know, I've had the chance to go in these cars at various trade shows. And then I think there'll be quite a rapid move to get a few things. And then it will take a long curve to kind of get to this, everyone having it. But you're right, it will be iterative and it will move up and I fully expect within, you know, certainly within the next 10 or 20 years to have some of the changes we've been talking about become apparent and it will be pretty profound. And honestly, it's quite exciting to think about. Cool. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening. If you have experienced automated vehicles or you've got some insight into that, please jump onto 361podcast.com where you can leave a comment or at 361podcast on Twitter. And when you're there, join up onto the Twist Forum and have a conversation with all the incredibly smart, beautiful, uh, elegant and eloquent people that are there and Rafe. And uh, also you can get a sticker in the meantime. While you're there, we would be jolly pleased if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing the podcast. We've not asked in a little while. And mm. uh, you know, I think we're the 271st most popular technology podcast in Norway at the moment. I was just reading are the other we? day. Awesome. Thank you, Norway. Love you, Norway. My dream is to be sub 265 in Norway. So, you know, that could, you could really make a... Let's try and push it in Norway. Come on, Norway. You could make a guy's dream come true. So, yeah, please go and rate and review. And, I mean, write something acerbic and witty and funny. Uh, that would be fantastic in the iTunes uh, podcast reviews. That would be great. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. We will be back in a few weeks. I hope the new schedule is appealing. Please jump onto the 361podcast.com and give us some feedback on the new season. We will be back soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.